and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And our topic is going to be early season corn growth. And I know here in the north, we got a little ways to go yet before the corn's even in the ground. But in the south, guys are rolling in many areas. And that's exciting because pretty soon we're going to see uh, some nice little corn plants out in the field and, and get to start managing them. So really excited to talk about corn on today's program, but also... Happy to talk to you. If you have an agronomic question, our phone lines will be open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. Brian, want to talk about corn or you want to look at some mailbag questions? Uh, well, I guess let me just first say with the corn side of things, there are a lot, there are a lot of things you can do now in terms of seed treatments. We also get a lot of questions about pop-up fertilizer, and I just want to caution everybody who's listening today, please don't put so much pop-up fertilizer in there. Yes, a little bit can help you. A little bit can speed emergence. We know that. That's proven. But if you get too much salt in or near that seed, you got a real problem. Our biggest issue a lot of times is just there isn't enough carrier to for this fertilizer. So where I'm going with this is let's say you're putting out three or four or five gallons, whatever, you end up with, uh, it, it basically spits a little bit out, then pulls it back, spits a little out, spits a little bit out. So sometimes you've got seeds that are fully covered by fertilizer and other seeds aren't. And those seeds that get fully covered by fertilizer, guess what? Those are the ones where germination absolutely gets hurt. So just be careful what you're doing. Put a little water with your fertilizer, water it down, spread it out more in that furrow, and use a low-salt product, and you should be in good shape. Yep, it's always a good tip. We we want to do everything we can to have great growth, and we don't want to do anything that's going to hurt our seed. That That's never a good thing, especially when you're spending money and then hurting seed with the money that you're spending. All right, uh, I got a few other questions that came in, Brian. Uh, let's dive into the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. Got this from Bob in Southwest Wisconsin. And Bob said, I'm looking for a burn down that I could use before seeding a, a no-till uh, Timothy, brome grass, orchard grass, and red clover mix. Uh, what can I do safely that won't hurt any of those seeds? Well, there are plenty of products out there that have no residual, whether it's Roundup, Liberty, Gramoxone, you've got a number of different choices. Now, there are a couple other things that you could possibly consider that I don't know are labeled for burn down in front of those crops. One would be AIM, that's PPO. So it's in the same chemical family as Valor or Authority. It just doesn't have any residual, but it does have good burn down. The other one would be Sharpen, also a PPO that does have residual. And that's the reason why I'm a little bit concerned, can you use that product or not? You just have to check the label. I don't know if it's labeled for those crops, but I like Sharpen in front of a lot of grass crops because it'll just wipe out your broadleaves, both burn down and residual. But just check the label, see if it's labeled. If not, then you got those other options. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, I got this one from Ben, and he said, in your soils clinics that you did this winter, you talked about matching up yield. Uh, by your one acre grids. Uh, what software are you using and is that something publicly available or something you could share? It is not publicly available at this point. It's some software that one of our agronomists developed. 
Otherwise, we just manually did it. And if you're only doing, let's say, a thousand data points, let's say you only have a thousand soil test points, grid points or zone points, you can just do it manually pretty quickly. But otherwise, the software obviously is really nice. When we've had a couple thousand data points, it, it took the one guy, the first two years, we just did it manually. And the guy who did it is an agronomist, uh, and he did it in less than a day. And basically, all he did is overlay the, the yield maps over the top of the soil test grid maps, and then just every, so, every GPS point for soil testing, he just hovered right over that point, saw what the nearest yield point was, took that yield point, put it on the spreadsheet, and that, that's how we generated the data. All right. Thank you for the for the question. I got this one from Randy in South Central Minnesota, and he said, what kind of rep record-keeping system do you use for your application of nutrients? I'm looking for something I could keep on my phone so I can go back and see what I've done. All we're using is spreadsheets, and I just use Dropbox so that I can access that right on my phone. We have spray records, and we scan all those in. I, I just also have that in Dropbox in just a separate folder, and then I can go back and look at individual spray records. But otherwise, we just put everything on a spreadsheet, and that's pretty simple. Yeah, there are a bunch of systems out there. We're not using them, uh, but but you can sure check into them, Randy, and, and uh, find some yep. different systems. I like simple, keep. and I like cheap. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, speaking about that, we got Randy has a question, and he said, I'm interested in some information on pelletized lime. Uh, some say it acts faster than regular lime. Others say it doesn't. Some say it lasts only a year. Others say it lasts as long as regular lime. Uh, and what rate to use, there's a lot of difference on that. So I'm just wondering, can you clear this up for me? If I use two tons of pelletized lime, will it all be gone in a year? Will it work just like regular lime Whoa. other than that it costs more money? Oh, my goodness. Two tons of pelletized lime? I've never in my life heard anybody using two tons of pelletized lime. That might cost you a fortune. So I don't think you're going to want to do that. But anyway, all the other things that people have told you, they're all true. High rate, low rate, works, doesn't work fast. I mean fast. Uh, lasts long, doesn't last long. It's all true. Here's the problem. Lime what you're going to compare it to is so unbelievably variable. You've got to look at the data. And if you see, hey, I've got a great ECCE, if I have a really fine lime, boy, you can have fast results with that too. We use a water treatment lime that almost all goes through a 100 mesh screen. I mean, it's almost instant where we start getting some activity. In terms of long lasting, a lot of that just depends on the rate. So anyway, you got to keep the rate low when you're going pelletized lime to keep that cost down. And that's probably the number one thing I'd say. Hey, thanks for the question, Randy. That's a very common one. A lot of people asking about uh, different lime sources. So uh, it's uh, it's something we hear quite often, and you're right. Low rates of pelletized lime make a difference right away. Well, stay tuned. We'll be right back. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping Dad. And Dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family our neighbors and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. This is a wake up call. 
for you and your field's microbiome from Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary foliar-applied biochemistry that doesn't rely on bulky nutrients or finicky biologicals to wake up your soil and unlock more nutrients per acre, all with a low use rate. It's like caffeine for microbes. Source works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. So if you're a grower, go to sound.ag and learn more. And if you're a microbe, time to rise and shine. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. When it comes to weed control, our cards have always been on the table because we believe you deserve near zero volatility, flexible tank mixing, and a wide application window. That's the Enlist weed control system, just better, with no ifs, ands, or buts. Discover better weed control. Enlist.com. Enlist.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio and talking about something pretty exciting today, early season corn growth. That's right. It won't be long and we'll see those fields green up across the country with little corn plants coming up. We want to do everything we can to get them off to a great start. Well, it all begins with the planter. And if we have decent soil conditions and we use the right equipment and we watch things closely, Man, we set ourselves up for so much success. But if one little thing goes wrong along the way, it can hurt you. And it's really hard to overcome that. In some cases, it's not even possible. I've got one of our friends on here, Tony Wendler with Farm Shop MFG to talk about this. Tony, you've seen so often where we end up with problems that were created. Either we got out there and it was too wet or we didn't have something set right on the planter. And all of a sudden you're fighting it all year long. Yes, uh, very true. The uh, one of the things on con- conditions. This is was kind of an eye opener to me, especially when you think about Minnesota. As I start interacting with more and more farmers, the guys in Minnesota often are planting soybeans before corn because they're you can kind of get by with a lot of things with soybeans, but for corn, they're waiting until the conditions are ideal to get out there and plant and. Uh, then uh, having a much better corn crop, maybe not the most ideal time, but the ideal conditions. So we get the best root ball development, most even emergence, all those topics. And then uh, the thing that I'm always thinking about is the last thing to impact that corn seed from the planter is that closing wheel system and getting the sidewalls destroyed, getting the seed to soil contact, all of that's going to help to maximize your emergence. And then uh, if you can firm that seed down, firm that soil down, uh, the one thing we've learned here in the dry years is wick moisture up and get that plant started uh, even and uh, getting uh, – you don't have as many uh, failed seeds, components like that. Well, you think about it in some of these dry areas, Tony, like you're talking about the pressure that you're applying with those closing wheels – 
can make a big difference in terms of getting moisture to come up around that seed zone or not. And we saw that last year. It it was uh, a, a huge difference on many farms. Talk to us about that just a little bit. What do you see in the dry conditions? What do you see in the wet conditions? And and how is how is the germinator closing wheel a little bit different? Because I know there's a lot of guys that'll switch out what closing wheels they're using in one condition or another, but this seems to be one that, that fits a lot of different uh, weather and soil conditions. Yes, the a big component of our closing wheel system is we've got that flat surface that comes across. We've got the shoulder, which is a flat surface, and that co- continues on across in the valley between our spikes. So we've got quite a surface, and that's directed towards the bottom of that furrow. The uh, when it applies pressure, it's firming that soil directly at it. I contrast that with some of the other products that are out there, that many of them have a uh, pointed center on it. So they're not pressing soil, they're splitting soil. In dry conditions, they're moving it over, so you've got a lot of loose soil around the grain, uh, the the seed, but it uh, didn't firm it and give you that firm zone. So that's something that's a high valuable uh, component is to firm that soil back. On pressure, I always tell the farmer, you know, they're picking this... uh, our steel closing wheel up and saying, wow, this is nine pounds. I can lighten up my down pressure. The reality is when you've got a uh, planter down on the ground and that uh, closing wheel arm is flexed into the springs, there's an incredible amount of pressure already on that. And nine pounds in the math of what that system is doing is not a lot. The first notch is generally 60 pounds or more. In fact, I saw a John Deere planter that we put a... Uh, fish scale on was over a hundred pounds in the first notch. Wow. The, uh, so, uh, my, my, uh, comment for them is stay where you at on pressure, go a hundred yards, go back and dig and look at what you've done. Poke into that seed zone. And I like to dig, don't dig down, dig a hole and then tunnel down the row. And then, uh, while you're tunneling, pick away and see how firm that, that soil is in the seed zone. Are there any air spaces in that seed zone? Components like that. If you're following through on that in loose soil last year, you, it was a very valuable, positive uh, experience for you. Now you talk about wet. Um, I've no-tilled with them in mud, the in soybeans. Not recommend, uh, Not recommending that, Tony, but you're just saying it's been done. Been done. In 1990, uh, uh, 2019, uh, you know, we had a field that was poorly tiled, was harvested with a chopper head, wouldn't dry. And this is the 8th of June, and you're wondering what you're going to do. The, uh, the reality of that is those beans went in that wet ground, and they jumped out of the ground in 48 hours. It was amazing. The, in that type of condition, uh, first notch, fantastic job. Squeeze that mud together. Uh, and when I say mud, when you rake the leaves back, it was shiny dirt. So not, uh, not, that's not the ideal, but it proves how in some years it's something you can do. Don't do a corn, bad thing, corn, but beans will forgive you a little bit. Yeah. Beans are, uh, I agree good. with you. Beans are a little bit more forgiving. And one other thing that before, before we move on, Tony, one other thing that you had mentioned is just how you dig and how you evaluate things in the field. And I think this one is interesting as, as I visit different farms, I like to see what tools 
people are using and how often they're getting out to dig. But then I also like to see how they're doing the dig. And I really like digging across the row. Like you're saying, dig a hole. And I, I just look at it as dig across. And then I can work my way up through that trench if I want to. And then you can kind of see what kind of pressure you're getting on each side of the of the seed and so forth. And if you're getting that consistent placement like you're hoping for. But it's not just one row. It's every row. Like you were mentioning uh, that, that there's a variance on these planters and uh, your settings are probably going to be different as you go across the planter to if you want things to be even with what you're doing in the soil. Yes, yes, very much. You know, I know these this uh, this farmer out in South Dakota, Hefties, I think is their name, and they've got their best, best guy out there actually digging behind their planters on every row. And what a smart decision. I just look at that and uh, think, I can't think of a better uh, better thought. And then now when you're talking digging, you know, the tools, I got a shovel and I dig that hole and I like to tunnel. I was taught to dig down from the top. I always found that really difficult. And then I was uh, had a neighbor show me how to take a board and scrape down. And I thought that disturbed the, the seed and even presses it and doesn't show me what my seed to soil contact is. Uh, and I learned when doing the research on the wheels that uh, tunneling, my description of tunneling, of uh, getting that hole so I can get rid of the dirt and then going lengthways down the row and feeling that seed zone. You know, I'm using a little plastic, one of those little ruler tools. And uh, you, you can feel that firmness in the seed zone. You can feel the firmness around the other parts. And just keep chipping and periodically you're going to find a seed uh, floating in that soil. And uh, at the same time, you're looking at the contact on that seed. You should also be looking at that, that seed zone. As you're tunneling down, are you finding air pockets? That's a bad deal if you're finding air pockets because certainly some seeds are going to find those too. So it's, I like the tunnel effect. And I know what you're saying, digging across. Uh, same, same principle. And then once you find it, you can go then tunnel down the row also. Right. Exactly. That's, yeah. I think that's the big thing. And for, for anybody listening today, if you've got a, a month or a little more before you're going to be out in the field, you might not remember all those things, but uh, you might come back and listen to this one more time or just take a couple of notes that, hey, I got to do things a little bit different when I'm digging. Just try a few different ways of doing it rather than I see so many people just kind of scratch right along the row and just see, okay, well, here's a seed. And so many inches later, here's a seed. And, and that's really the only thing they're looking at. You've got to get an accurate measure of how deep you're you're getting with the seed, no doubt about it, and how even the spacing is. But you also want to take a look at that pressure that you're putting around that seed. And that's why Tony uh, so often talks about that inner shoulder on the pro or on the germinator closing wheels and, and what a difference that's making in different soil conditions. Uh, Tony, hey, we got to run. Really appreciate having you on. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. You Bye. Bet talking about early season corn growth on today's show and we want to do everything we can to get that crop off to a good start we'll talk about that a little bit more and take your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD
Soybean growers are dealing a swift blow to tough broad leaves and grasses with the two-in-one power of Moccasin MTZ. Moccasin MTZ combines the power of s metolachlor and a higher load of Metribuzin for outstanding weed control right from the outset with extended residual control to keep tough weeds down, including pigweed, water hemp, ragweed, and mare's tail. In addition to annual grasses like foxtail and barnyard grass, ask your retailer about Moccasin MTZ and always read and follow label directions. The first name and last word in weed control in heavier, higher organic soil types is Authority Edge Herbicide from FMC. This proprietary combination of actives outperforms the competition, delivering up to 14 more days of residual control. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Authority Edge Herbicide may not be registered for sale or use in all states. Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva AgriScience, the newest Premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean, they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like... Nice fields! See the difference at kyberherbicide.com soy. That's K-Y-B-E-R herbicide.com soy. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use Fierce Herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, talking about early season corn growth. Yes, it's true. I've got spring fever. I'm pretty excited. Uh, won't be too long. We'll be planting some corn out there. I know, it feels like it's a long ways off, but, you know, in six weeks, we will be, uh, well, our crop insurance date, I think, is around April 10th here, so not even six weeks. We could be going if soil conditions were fit and the, the weather was right, so We'll see. We'll see. It's coming soon. So we're going to talk about early season corn growth on today's show. Also take your agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got another great guest on right now. we got Mark Licht with Iowa State University. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Oh, man. It's, it's going to be corn planting time here before we know it. So uh, we're thinking about early season corn growth. Where do you start when you get questions about that and how growers can maximize their yield potential? Yeah, so, you know, quite honestly, the first thing, you know, you know, corn planting in general, it's a matter of getting the seed in the ground and, and getting it in, um, you know, how we want it, right? So we want it at the right depth and we want uniform placement and all that stuff. Um, if we can get that, that is, you know, a, a big milestone that gets us a long ways to the to the end goal. You know, one thing, too, that I think about as we're putting seed in the ground is population. We've had more downed corn, by my estimation, uh, the last several years. I mean, obviously, a derecho probably is an exception. But uh, just in general, we've seen more corn going down. I think growers are overplanting in certain soils and certain situations. What's been your experience on the planting population? you think we're overdoing it sometimes? You know, um, as I hear hear some of these seeding rates, especially when they get up above thirty five thousand, that that does concern me. Just looking at some of the seeding rate trials that I've done, you know, I, I see kind of the, maybe the maximum yields, you know, at a at a seeding rate of thirty five thousand. But by the time you figure in your seed costs, you know, for an economic yield, you probably should be maybe dropping thirty three or thirty four thousand, and then your your final stand is going to be, you know, that thirty to thirty two thousand. Um, so I think maybe we are a little bit uh, further up than we should be. At the same time, I, I know that, you know, part of what's happening with these genetics is they, they have a little bit more tolerance, you know, for those higher populations. And we've seen some of that as well. But um, you, you might be on to something. We might be pushing these maybe a little bit further than we can right now. Yeah, there's 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 always a limit. I mean, with anything we do, whether it's fertilizer or, or population or early planting, all these things, there's kind of a limit. How about on the early planting side? Our strategy has always been let's wait till the crop insurance date and then kind of judge what conditions are after that point. But we are seeing some guys pushing it on soybeans. I think some guys are pushing it on corn. What's been your experience with early planting? So, well, I'm with Extension, so I kind of say, you know, that crop insurance date is probably the beginning date, you know, type thing. But really, you know, we can look at, you know, the 10, 14, even the 30-day outlook, and we can get a fairly decent idea if, you know, if if the weather's going to be warming up, yeah, maybe we start on, you know, on the earlier side. But if there's some hesitancy in those forecasts, it it may be wise to hold off a little bit. At, At the same point, I think it's, you know, extremely critical to make sure that we don't get pushed into a late planting situation. Um, You know, that risk of yield loss because of late planting is much more severe than the risk of yield loss if we plant too early. And so it's a little bit of a balancing act and you kind of have to know what your tolerance is if, you know, for that, that spring frost risk. All right. One other thing that I think is a a risk out there, and we were actually hoping for some colder weather this winter, which I don't know if we were the only ones hoping for that. We certainly didn't get it. But when you think about compaction out there, there's bigger equipment, there are operations running more acres, and so it takes more time to be out there, and conditions aren't perfect all the time. How big a deal, in your estimation, is compaction of the soil in the state of Iowa? You know, a lot of it does depend on, you know, what did we get for a freeze-thaw cycle? Uh, how wet was it during harvest? You know, and, and if we had manure application that time frame as well, um, I think it can be a, a pretty big deal. Um, you know, quite honestly, I see I do see compaction every year. 
um, from those fall operations. You, you know, sometimes it's easy to see because you got these nice wheel tracks that go diagonal across the field at about the right angle, right? <laughs> um, you know, so that's that's definitely a concern. Um, but something that I maybe see a little bit more often is compaction because of the planter. You know, with the hydraulic and pneumatic downforce, um, sometimes we do get into situations where we put too much on. And then, you know, where those gauge wheels go, now we have a nice two inch by two inch, you know, block on either side of that seed. Um, and then sometimes we, when we start planting on the earlier side of things, you know, after, after a rain, you know, those double disc openers um, do smear that sidewall. And then that creates some pretty, pretty significant compaction as well. So, you know, a lot of times we think of the heavier equipment, but, you know, one of our lighter pieces of equipment going across the field can do just as much damage. Yeah, it sure can. It sure can. No doubt about that. You got to be really fussy with everything we're doing out in the field. Um, one thing this spring that I've I've heard a lot about is complaining over high fertilizer prices, and that leads me to believe. I wonder if some guys are going to cut back a little bit just because that fertilizer bill is so high. What What are you hearing about fertilizer in the state of Iowa? Are you concerned about this year's corn crop because these fertilizer prices are so high? I'm, I'm definitely hearing the concern about the prices. Um, you know, that's pretty obvious. Um, there's been some talk about, you know, where do we cut back? Um, and, yeah, I think yeah, a good opportunity is to look at what your soil tests are for uh, phosphorus and potassium. If you're up there in the, the high, very high categories, maybe that's where you pull back. Use some of that uh, fertility bank that you've been building over the years as a way to save some of those costs. And then that that maybe opens the door for a little bit more spending with these costs on the nitrogen side. You know, the other thing is, is, you know, outside of a, a few weeks there in the fall, we've been relatively dry. And so we've got a fair amount of soil nitrate that's kind of hanged up, hanging up in the soil um, that just hasn't been flushed through. And so, you know, maybe the thing is, is that we go out with a, uh, maybe a reduced rate ahead of planting, and then we monitor the crop. We keep an eye on what we've had for rainfall. And if we need to come back with more, then we can adjust how much more in season. So again, kind of hedging our bets, uh, you know, as far as being able to use, you know, residual soil nitrogen if, if we don't end up losing it with rainfall um, versus, you know, kind of putting it all out there and, and hoping for the best. You know, the other thing along with these high fertilizer prices is just the talk that, well, maybe I'll move some more acres over to beans. Do you see guys changing rotations this year? Is that corn price still attractive enough to to hold the 50-50 rotation for a lot of guys? You know, I, I do think that the corn price and the soybean prices are holding pretty strong, um, and that that's helping us, you know, kind of bridge this a little bit. I don't envision that in and of itself um, you know, switching too many acres. Where we might have some acres um, shifting is where we're, you know, near ethanol plants or we, where we have a, a strong basis on the corn uh, prices, right? Um, and then that's where we would normally see that. And I would expect, you know, with these commodity prices, that basis could grow a little bit more yet. All right, last question for you. This is always a fun one. Tar spot. We saw all the maps said, made it all the way across the state of Iowa this year, which is a little bit scary. Uh, but I still talk to a lot of farmers that say, man, I didn't see it, but I, I saw that they found it in my county. How big a concern is tar spot for the state of Iowa going into 2022? It's definitely a growing concern. Um, and so, yeah, well, they they found it and identified it, you know, across the state. 
um, it, it has it, it's not in every field, right? Um, and so part of that's just genetics. Part of that's the um, you know the growing conditions that we had. Um, I do think I would be concerned about it. I'd, I'd be learning more, you know, on what we can do, and what we should be looking for, what we should be um, considering in in going into the future, right? Um, like some of these diseases, they do take off and they do spread, but we don't necessarily see them, you know, in every situation every year. Um, but it definitely does bring some, you know, heedance to let's, let's learn a little bit more. Let's make sure we're ready if we do see it. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. We're talking with Mark Licht with Iowa State. Mark, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the information today, taking the tough questions and uh, good luck. You're heading into the spring. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. You bet. Thanks. Talking about early season corn growth, I can't think about much more fun than that. Talking about corn, that's that's a good thing to do, right? We'll also tackle any agronomic questions you may have if you give us a call at 844-44-AG-PHD. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, it means getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting experts who will work with you to create a program unique to your operation, all while accounting for the quality of your soil and the products you're already using. It's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Beat resistant weeds with Tough IVC on your team. Add Tough IVC into your post-emergent tank mix and even the playing field. Tough IVC, a selective contact herbicide, synergizes HPVD inhibitors and enhances the effect of PS2 herbicides. Tough IVC increases control of some of the toughest to kill herbicide resistant weeds, such as Palmer Amaranth and Waterhem. Ask your local retailer about Tough IVC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people, and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. 
Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking about early season corn growth, and yes, acknowledging our spring fever here, no doubt about that. Uh, but we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions here at the Morton Studio. It's eight four four forty four Ag PhD. Let's go back to the phone lines here. We got Eric out with us with Valent right now. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. Thank you. All right, this is one of the areas. Now, a lot of people, when when they hear valent, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, those guys have some great soybean herbicides, but you've really been doing a lot of work on early growth in corn, and it's pretty exciting. Uh, so when you think about early growth in corn, it, it always seems to start slow, and it's like, man, it's kind of like your lawn. You, you're never disappointed that your lawn starts really slow because you only have to mow once a week instead of twice a week. But with the corn, uh, we just soon have a little bit more of that growth early in the season. So what's holding us back, Eric, and what can we do about it? Right, yes, uh, good question. So, yeah, uh, obviously some of it has to do with, uh, you know, the corn plant uh, changing from its uh, seed roots to its nodal roots, as well as, you know, the the weather that we typically have in the Midwest, you know, we uh, or wherever corn is grown, there always typically seems to be some cold snap about two or three weeks after the corn's planted, and that tends to slow things down. And uh, yeah, just it, it doesn't allow that temp, those temperatures don't allow that corn plant to grow. You know, the, the cold weather is, is something, you're right, it's going to come, and it's not going to be ideal all the time, and, and that's slowing growth down. Inside the plant, what does that lead to? Because we think about all the plant growth hormones that there are. When we've got slow growth, obviously we're short of something, uh, and in most cases uh, the people are suspecting it's gibberellic acid. So how accurate is that? And why is the plant producing jib and just can't move it? Or is it just not even producing enough? Right. Yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, gibberellic acid is one of the, the several classic plant growth hormones that, uh, uh, affect growth. And yeah, you know, that's one that's really slowed down by cold temperatures and, uh, what gibberellin, gibberellins do, gibberellic acid does, is uh, 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 forces the cell to elongate, and it works with uh, some of the other plant hormones uh, like cytokinins and cell division. And so, you know, with those two cell cell elongation and cell division, you're going to get more cells and more growth. But when it's cold, it's the plant itself isn't producing uh, as m- many of those gibberellins as it could be in warmer temperatures. Now, there have been a lot of growers out there that have been trying to meet this need for gibberellic acid. There's lots of different products and formulations out on the market, but the best success we've seen has been with the Rise Up Smart Grass product. What's different with that formulation? Is it that it's more concentrated? Is it that it's more stable? Uh, Because we are seeing a difference in performance. Yes. So, uh, so one is, uh, the formulation itself. It's a high concentration, uh, compared to some of the other products on the market with a uh, relatively low concentration. So the concentration is high. It's, uh, uh, 
produced by uh, our sister company, Valent Biosciences, and they, they go through rigorous testing on things. And the formulation itself, uh, how easily it uh, uh, suspends in water is and other types of uh, uh, carriers, uh, I think that's where it really sets it apart. When we look at different crops that, that Rise Up Smart Grass is valuable for, I know we've done some work on our farm on small grains, on corn silage, on pasture. Can you talk about those situations, how to use it, what kind of rate you need, and then uh, any other crops that, that growers may be interested in trying Rise Up Smart Grass on? Yes. So uh, with uh, some of the small grains like wheat, uh, we're targeting that early springtime. Well, speaking of winter wheat, I should say, uh, targeting that early spring timing when the, the, the wheat's starting to green up. And uh, it really, we really see that uh, enhance the, the early season growth. Uh, with pastures, uh, we're able to apply either late in the fall or early spring to allow uh, cattle to uh, graze earlier in the spring or later in the fall. So you're extending that period of time when uh, you don't have to supplemental feed. And then in corn, uh, specifically about silage, uh, you know, it, you're, you're increasing not only the quantity of silage, you're, also, you're keeping that quantity the same. So you're not reducing the quantity, quality and keeping that uh, milk per acre uh, up there. And one thing that I think that's a really good potential fit is uh, with some of these, uh, uh, you know, cereal cover crops where, uh, you know, growers plant after their uh, uh, cash crop and then they're able to uh, potentially plant cereal rye or some other uh, grass crop and, uh, apply the rise up in the spring and then uh, chop it for uh, hay or silage and feed to their cattle. Yeah. Or or graze it or graze it. If we can get more tonnage out there, it's you're right. That's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that, but we do the same thing in pasture where we're spraying it. As soon as those daytime highs, our target has always been Eric, if we get daytime highs that are down in the sixties and we think that's about the time where the grass growth kind of slows down. What's been your experience with that temperature when we're trying to, to get it done in the spring. I know sometimes like last year we had this really, really hot June. And for guys that were late in getting the application made, we said, man, we're 90 degrees. We don't, we don't really need jib anymore. But uh, when we're cool and in the 60s, that's kind of been our target. But are, are we off on that? Should we be starting a little earlier or, or waiting a little longer in the fall? Yeah, so 60 does seem to be uh, uh, a good number uh, if you know, uh, the, some of the, the cooler season grasses like wheat and some of the, the tall fescue type pastures, uh, they, they, they respond well anytime it's under 60. Corn, since it's a warmer, warmer season grass, uh, we have a, we're able to uh, see a little uh, better response even at some higher temperatures, uh, but not, not like 90 degrees like you mentioned earlier. But yeah, six, 60 to 70 is probably more so for the warmer season grasses. Okay. 
Okay. Now, uh, a couple of things, uh, small grains. And I, I had some questions uh, about the small grains. One thing that we've noticed is we've got a little thicker stock when we've used it on small grains. Is that normal that the jib would make that stock a little bit stronger? Because we do get a little taller plant, but uh, but the stock strength seemed to be really good too. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, uh, we have seen uh, where the the plants tend to stand up a little better, uh, and we we can attribute that to at the end of the at harvest time. We can attribute that to uh, just uh, yeah the the, the gibberellic acid being in the plant and uh, fortifying that plant. Oh, did we lose you there, Eric? Oh, hello. Yep. Oh, there we go. Lost you for just a second. So you're saying uh, you could attribute that to the gibberellic acid being in there. One last question, and we got about 30 seconds left. But sometimes, like on the pasture, we see just a little lighter shade of green where we've got that aggressive growth after a rise-up application. Are you recommending that go out with nitrogen? So, yes, good question on the nitrogen. Yes, yeah, so typically we, we recommend that being applied with nitrogen, uh, just think about the amount of chlorophyll in that leaf, and you're causing that those cells to expand. And well, you're going to lighten the shade of that green. And uh, yeah, we nitrogen helps helps quite a bit, and other micro and other nutrients as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we're talking with Eric Ott here with Valent about early season corn growth and specifically about gibberellic acid and their product, Rise Up Smart Grass. Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the info today. Thank you. Talking about early season corn growth, but we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-442-4743. We'll be right back. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low Use Rate Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. What's new from New Farm? Longbow EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical? Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available for fall. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, 
We discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD-TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. During the Bronze Age, grain sorghum was a common crop in developing agriculture. Today's technology has changed virtually everything, but grain sorghum largely hasn't changed until now. Introducing Emiflex herbicide, paired with iGrowth non-GMO herbicide-resistant grain sorghum, this duo controls foxtail and other tough weeds pre and post emergence so you can grow like never before. Make history in your sorghum makers. Start today at sorghumpotential.com. Always read and follow label directions. back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We've been talking about early season corn growth, and man, what a difference it makes if you get that crop off to a good start. But we're getting some questions in here for the Ag PhD mailbag to dive into. Uh, first one is kind of a uh, comment, and, and he sent along an article as well. It's from Mike down in New Zealand. He said, can you guys find an older combine driver than my neighbor? 94 years old harvesting crop man that is awesome to be in in good shape and you know we've had some some uh, folks live past 100 in our area too and uh, i don't know how many of those guys were still running combines late in their life but brian i know you had a story uh, uh our great aunt she had to be well into her 90s when we were doing some tiling and she wanted to ride along in the field and and see how this whole tiling thing was done riding along is whole different than operating an enormous machine so kudos to the guy running it at 94 that's impressive yeah yeah that's for sure all right um i got a bunch of soil tests here and uh i don't know if this is maybe the best thing to talk to you about over the over the phone Brian, but i'll give it a shot uh well actually here let me uh, one more question here from an ffa uh student this is from madison and Madison writes, uh, I'm, I'm in the FFA. I'm giving a speech on the benefits of pesticides. And in researching this topic, I'm finding a hard time uh, getting a lot of factual resources. Just wondering if you could answer a couple of questions for me. First of all, how would the food supply and costs be impacted if we didn't use pesticides? Well, the food supply would go down and and the costs would go up then of of course, it's just supply and demand. And the reason why the food supply would be worse is because what modern pesticides allow us to do is to safely produce more food. If we can control the pests that are out in a crop, whether it's weeds or insects or diseases, then we know that that crop is going to yield more, but the food coming off of it is going to be healthier. And that's one of the things that a lot of people just simply do not understand is they think, oh, it's a pesticide and now my food's going to be less safe. No, 
not true. In most cases, what we find is because there are fewer natural carcinogens produced in any plant when it is under less stress, what we're commonly seeing is now the food is actually healthier when it's produced using pesticides, as long as they're used correctly and on label. All right. And then Madison's other question, what are resources that would be helpful for me to learn more about the benefits of pesticides and how to argue popular arguments and assumptions that are made? Uh, resources, I don't, I don't know what to say. To so the government that's, tests that's safety on all the, the pesticides, Brian. They have LD50 and, and different measures of safety out there. And comparing that to the safety of common products like caffeine and table salt has been something that's been kind of fun, at least. And obviously, you're not trying to ingest pesticides, but just to make the point of my goodness, many of these things we're using at uh, a tenth of an ounce or a quarter ounce per acre, and they're safer than caffeine or or table salt even for, for human safety. And that, that has to tell you something, but certainly you want to look at the the safety data sheets on, on each of these pesticides that you're going to be talking about. But Madison, I'd pick a couple of the real popular ones and get to understand what the studies have been on them. Like Roundup, for example, is always a, a lightning rod for some of these discussions. Yeah, but the, but the whole thing, Darren, is a lot of these studies are fictitious and I, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying the government data. We have people. We, yeah, I, that's fine. But you're going to find a whole bunch of non-government data, too. And that's what I'm fearful of. And then you start believing some of the, the nonsense that's out there. It's ridiculous. So with glyphosate, for example, it works on an enzyme that's found only in plants. Human beings don't even have that enzyme. There's no possible physical way the active ingredient glyphosate's hurting anybody. So, but you hear all this stuff out there that, oh, it's causing cancer and everything. No, the active ingredient in glyphosate is not causing cancer. No possible way. It's been proven by country after country after country for 50 years now. So anyway, there's just, there's a lot of bad information floating around the internet. And of course, then people start regurgitating that stuff. And so it's a little sad. All right, Brian, uh, I got a question, and this one is from Jim in Illinois. You said in our state it appears the legislators are working on banning dicamba possibly or at least increasing the regulations yep. on this product. I'm in a yep. corn-soybean rotation. Yep. I want to use dicamba at least one time in my two-year rotation. Is it more beneficial in corn and soybeans? And if I'm going to use it, what strategy would you use to make sure I don't have any problems with neighboring fields? <laughs> uh, well, don't use it if you don't want problems with neighboring fields. because Well, then, then you're 100% sure so you're the not going to have problems. Way, that's right. That's my point. The only way you're going to be 100% confident is to not use it. Now, I will say if you can pick a day where the wind is blowing away from that field, and not just for that day, but for the 48 hours after you spray, if you can do that, then you're going to be in pretty good shape and you've got just dramatically reduced risk. You know, when you look at the corn programs, I think one of the mistakes that, that I've noticed over the past few years has been there are dicamba products that are labeled to use late in the year in corn. And by the time they're getting applied, it's much warmer. 
And many of the things that we've learned about dicamba over the last, well, 30 years or more uh, has been, man, you spray when it's hot, it's going to move around a lot more. So I'm seeing the most success for growers trying to avoid problems, but still get some dicamba in their program. Using it in the burn down or very early season in soybeans seems to be a good way to go. Or if you're using it in corn, make sure you use it early. Because the old, the old advice that we had for products like Clarity was we want to get them sprayed by V2, V5 at the absolute latest. But if we're down in the V2 range, we're out there before the ear shoots are initiated and we just don't have much chance of hurting the crop that we're spraying it on, let alone have it move to neighboring fields. So to me, I just look at the, the total herbicide program and say, okay, do I really need it or can I do something else to avoid it? Like Brian was saying, but if I'm going to use it, I'm going to use it extremely early in the year. And I don't know if it'd be more benefit in corn or beans. I'm going to say it's probably more benefit in soybeans used in the burn down if you're in a no-till situation. Definitely. Definitely. Because you can use an HPPD in corn and other things. So I, I would say this, though, where you believe that it's more important to do it when there's less heat, I don't think that matters. What I do think matters is the stage of any crop that's going to get hit by it. So the later it is, the more it's into reproduction, like if, sensitive soybeans, so non-dicamba tolerant soybeans, if they get hit and it's later in the year and they're flowering, then you're going to have a lot of problems. All right. Uh, I got this question from Eric down in Missouri about Liberty. He said, guys, I've been using soybeans that are tolerant to Liberty for years. I've switched traits over the years. Now I'm using Enlist soybeans. Uh, I like Liberty because it gets my pigweed under control very well. However, this year my dealer says I'm only going to get enough Liberty to cover a little over half my acres. So on the acres that I can't spray Liberty on, what would you recommend? Pigweed is by far my number one weed. Wait, what crop? Soybeans. Yeah, we talk about this all the time. Start with the three pre's, a yellow metribuzin, and either authority and valor, authority or valor. And then early post, you follow up with either Anthem Max or Warrant Ultra, where you've got a PPO plus a group 15. So now you got five different chemistries, four modes of action, and now you got 99% of all those tough weeds under control. You should be in great shape. And then after that, I mean, it's not tough. You can clean it up with whatever, Cobra or Roundup or something. Yeah, just be very timely on everything that you're doing, Eric. You don't want weeds to get too big. They get much tougher to get. Uh, one last question. This right. comes from Jeremy down in Nebraska. He said, guys, I'm farming mostly rented ground. I'm a young farmer just getting going. And when I started doing the complete soil test, like you recommend, all my micronutrients are low. What's the most cost-effective way to deal with this on rented ground? <laughs> um, probably I would add some at planting time. That's what I would do. Just add a little bit at a time. You can do a little foliar feeding too. Otherwise, you talk to the landlord and say, look, I want to broadcast spread a bunch of zinc sulfate or something like that to really fix the problem and build the soil. But you're going to need a little help from the landlord. Yeah. And if you did something like that, Jeremy, that's going to stick around for a long time. And you can show what crop removal rates are on micronutrients. They're very, very low. So you're going to get a benefit out of that for many years. So yes, you'd have a pretty good argument with your landlord that he's going to get benefit for years to come. Thanks for the question. And thanks to you for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.